Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. Our reading this morning will be from Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 through 26, to the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, that'd be fantastic. Um, Genesis chapter 4, starting with verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore uh, Enoch. When he, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after his, the name of his son, Enoch. Enoch was uh, born Irad. So Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujil, and Mahujil fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ida, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ida bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ida and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let's, let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning to worship you. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that no matter what happens, Lord, you're in control. No matter what happens, you... Uh, nothing surprises you, uh, that we can look to you and we can call upon your name and you are dependable. Lord, I pray that we would, that our eyes would turn to you this morning. Pray all this in your name. Amen. You know, this year has been a tough year in a lot of ways, I think, for a lot of us. For a lot of people, it's been a difficult year. There's been plenty to worry about, and there has been plenty this year to stress about as well. You know, in our world in general, over the the last 
few years, over the last few decades, stress and anxiety problems have become a rampant thing. Depression and suicide has been skyrocketing, and then this year happens, and to my understanding, it has only accelerated even more. I, I think I heard that over the last uh, months that we have had, um, yeah, over the last months that calls to the suicide hotline have, have like gone up six times or something just completely crazy uh, like that. And though Americans have more than ever before, they seem less satisfied with life than ever before as well. And we've been told, what we hear a lot of times is that self-esteem and self-confidence are critical. We need better self-confidence. We need more self-esteem, that being self-motivated and self-assured and self-made are, are values that we should have, that self-care is necessary for your survival, especially in a year like this one, your number one priority, we're told, should be self-care. I get emails, you know, telling me, hey, here's the top five self-care products that you should buy this Black Friday or, or, or whatever. Since 2013, I was doing a little research. Since 2013, the number of self-help self books that are sold have doubled just in the last seven years. And the number of self-help books that have been published have tripled in the last six years. Self-care... Self-care is now a half-trillion-dollar market. I don't know if before 10 years ago I ever heard the term self-care. A lot of books tell us, here's how you get ahead. Here's how you can win in life. Do these things, seven steps or whatever. And then there's other self-help books that take the completely opposite approach. I don't know if you've seen this. There's these books that tell us to stop apologizing, that tell us, you know, uh, here's how to not give, uh, you know what I mean. But whether they're telling you how to feel better about yourself by being more successful and becoming more successful, whether they're telling you how to feel better about yourself by not caring about success at all, either way, I wonder if we aren't completely missing the ball. You see, the Bible gives us a completely different and truthfully paradoxical direction. It says that rather than a kind of independent self-confidence, we ought to seek a dependent God-centeredness. That everything is falling apart because we were never meant to be the gravitational center of our universe. Sure, maybe some of us can hold it together for a while, even more can make it look like they're holding it together to the outside world, but it never lasts. And I wonder if it's, not, if it's not confidence that we need more of, but it's actually humility that we need more of. 
And I don't mean the fake kind of humility where you self-deprecate in order to bring more attention to yourself or because all of your own attention is on yourself. You know what I mean. You've, you've heard that. Oh, no, no, really. It's nothing. It's nothing. Yes, actually, it is everything. I mean real humility, the kind where you neither self-promote uh, nor self-deprecate. Because the focus isn't even on you. You see, you can't, you can't really understand the gospel and you can't really understand the Bible and you can't really understand Christian life unless you grasp this foundational truth. And, it, and, it, and it's the bottom line of the sermon this morning. And this is what it is. It's not about you. It's not about you. This year isn't about you. This world isn't about you. Your life isn't about you. It's not about you. It's not. It may be a shock to some of us. And I know for a lot of the world, that's almost like, uh, I don't know, the worst sin to tell someone it's not about them. But it's not. The contrast between these two ways of thinking is going to be revealed in our passage this morning. And if, and if through faith in Jesus you can let go of this lie that's been ingrained in you from birth and this lie that is ingrained in our sinful hearts because of our sin nature, well, you might just find yourself with greater peace, with more contentment and less stress. Not because you're better, but because... God is better. And so our passage this morning, it mostly consists of this genealogy of Cain. And it, and it seems like it seems like boring stuff, right? I'm reading that a minute ago and you're going, okay, what in the world are we going to talk about in this sermon when those are the verses that we're going over? But I'd like to draw your attention to both the start and the end of this genealogy because I think it reveals the purpose of why it's here. And I believe that the purpose is to show us that independent self-confidence, the independent self-confidence of Cain and his descendants who reject God, It's the same independent self-confidence that we find welling up inside of us. You see, at the beginning, Cain, he has this son, Enoch, right? And he starts a family, and it says that he builds a city, and he names this city after his son. And none of this sounds too earth-shattering, right? It sounds pretty ordinary. He started a family, started a city, he named it after his son, that's cool. Cities provide protection and stability, and that's good, right? Except, except, if you remember last week, God told Cain that he would be a wanderer. And that God would be the one that would protect him. Apparently, Cain didn't trust that promise. And so Cain, rather than trusting and obeying God, rather than trusting that God would take care of him, Cain decided, no, I'm going to build a city for myself to protect 
me and protect my family. And so Cain's actions reveal that his trust is ultimately in his own ingenuity and his own hard work. But Cain's line continues. It continues through a a few more generations and it stops on the seventh generation with this guy Lamech. Now, you need to understand that the number seven in Hebrew literature often signifies completion. And so the idea that this this genealogy would stop and rest on Lamech and describe Lamech and his actions is showing that Lamech is representing the completion of whatever is going on that started with with Cain. This this spirit of independent self-confidence is most typified, most exemplified in Lamech and his actions. And it records two important examples of what's going on in Lamech's life. First, in verse 19, it says that Lamech takes two wives. This is the first This is so incredibly important because this is the first recorded breaking of God's intended order in marriage in Genesis. This is the first time that someone steps out of a monogamous lifelong covenant of marriage and he takes two wives instead of one. And each, and then these two wives, they have Three sons, and each of these sons it describes are incredible developers of cultural and technological advancements. They they move the ball in culture and they move the ball in technology in a tremendous way. In this early history of civilization, there's no greater record of human advancement than Lamech's three sons. And then the second thing that we see, the second important example, is in verses 23 through 24, if you look there with me. Lamech writes a bit of self-promoting poetry, if you will, for his wives. I mean, clearly, when you read that, you understand why he can get two wives. I mean, he's got away with words, right? <laughs> apparently, apparently, back then, this worked. I, don't, I wouldn't recommend it now. But he, he essentially says in his poetry, essentially says, a young war- warrior came and hit me, so I killed him. That's what I do. You hit me, you want to punch me, I'm going to kill you. And his arrogance is apparent In the final lines, it says, Cain's revenge is sevenfold. You remember, you remember in the passage last week that God said, I'll protect you. And and Cain said, this is too much. Someone's going to kill me. And and God said, no, my protection is is this, that, that if anyone kills you, I will avenge it sevenfold. But Lamech... He says, well, that's not good enough. My revenge is 77, 70 times seven fold, which is a fancy way of saying a whole bunch more. Vengeance will be totally and utterly by Lamech's hand, by his own judgment, irregardless of whether it's actually just or not. It's just based on what Lamech wants. You see, this is what you, you got to get, listen, listen. 
indulgence, indulgence, Lamech takes two wives, right? Becomes injustice whenever it's not in line with God's standards. Indulgence will always become injustice when it is not in line with God's standards. And the same is true today and in our lives. When we indulge ourselves because we just want to, because we feel like we deserve it, because you, whatever our excuse is, it will become indulgence, indulgence will become injustice against others if it doesn't stay in line with God's standards. And so while Cain's line demonstrates this tremendous increase in human advancement and progress, it also demonstrates a tremendous increase in independent self-confidence. And the independent self-confidence of the ungodly, of Cain's line, this ungodly line, is self-reliant. It builds a city instead of trusting God. It's self-indulgent. It goes beyond God's order to its selfish desires and pleasures. It's self-justifying. It takes judgment out of God's ruling and into its own ruling. And I think we're tempted at times to downplay the grievous, grievousness of, sin, of the sins of hubris, the sins of pride, the sins of arrogance. But we have to come to terms with the reality that those are the distinguishing characteristics of the ungodly in Genesis. And that characteristic inevitably results in sins like sexual morality and murder. It's easy for us to excuse a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of selfishness, God's word warns us against it. I think the question comes up at this point as we read about this, this independent self-confidence, this, this hubris that Cain's line has and how it's intermixed with this great advancement in culture and technology, and we, the question comes up, should we then shun cultural and technological advancements? And, and I'm not saying that we need to get rid of electricity or indoor plumbing or something like that. Too many Christians, however, I think, react actually in the opposite direction than that. They say, well, that doesn't mean we should shun these, these advancements. And so then they actually swing the pendulum too far the opposite direction. And they, they refuse to recognize the reality that a lot of advancements that we experience are also tainted by a tremendous amount of sin. Because sin is part of the equation, technology and culture and every system that benefits mankind on the one hand can and usually does also damage mankind on the other. That everything 
mean, things that have good aspects also have bad aspects. Because behind those things are sinful people who use them in sinful ways. And we have to recognize this, church, not just in what we find easy to oppose. You see, it's easy to recognize those bad aspects in the things that we find easy to oppose. I don't like that anyways, and so I'll rail on the bad parts of it. But we need to recognize it in the things we actually like as well. The things that we prefer. Here's a simple example from technology. A cell phone in your pocket that has the internet can be a wonderful and useful tool, right? But we know that study after study is showing us a direct connection between the constant stream of social media and the the precipitous increase in anxiety, depression, suicide among those who have grown up with the internet in their pocket. It is an undeniable connection. There's just too many studies that show that if you're sitting on your phone, scrolling through Facebook all the time, that that has a direct correlation to the immense increase in stress and anxiety in people's lives. And of course it does. Of course that's the case when much of what you find on social media platforms is image-centric, approval-seeking, success porn with no accountability and no responsibility. And you look at it and you think, wow, these people's lives are so great. Look at them. This snapshot looks fantastic. I wish my life was like that. You have no idea what's actually going on. Its concern is self-esteem and confidence, not humility. Its concern is look at me and look how great I am. And we're addicted to it because we're addicted to ourselves. We'd rather focus our eyes on the perceived success of another human that we wish that we had rather than focusing our attention on God. My point here is this, human progress doesn't always translate into human flourishing. There's a lie out there that says progress is good, period. It's not true. This passage shows us clearly that human progress does not always translate into human flourishing. It doesn't. So what's the problem? What's missing? I think verses 25 through 26 shed some light. Adam has a new son. His name is Seth. Now, Seth, in the Hebrew, it sounds like the word for appointed. You see, the name recognizes God's provision in restoring what was lost in the murdering of Abel. And we get this shortened genealogy here of Seth's line, even though next 
The next chapter of Genesis is going to be an extended one. Why? Why does the Bible add this little shortened version of his genealogy? I think it gives just enough information to contrast Seth and his descendants with Cain and Cain's descendants and to draw out one very particular, very, very important point. Look at verse 26 with me. The very end of the passage. At that time, people, people meaning particularly Seth's line, not Cain's line, began to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you remember what Cain did in verse 17? He built a city and he named it what? After his son. It was himself he would depend on. It was his son's name, his lineage that he wanted remembered. He would make a name for himself rather than calling on the name of the Lord. It was his own legacy that he desired to live on because because how else would he, in his own power, deal with the eventuality of sin's curse on him that is death? How would he live on Past death to name city after his descendants. See, Seth's line, by calling on the name of the Lord, gives us a different solution. Rather than this independent self-confidence, Seth's line says, no, we should have dependent God-centeredness. We should depend on God. We should center our lives on him. And this dependent God-centeredness has two aspects here. First, it's a petition of God because we know that we need him. Seth's name recognized that dependence. God appointed. God provided a new son in Seth. And second, it's a praise of God because of who he is and what he has done. It's, it's him, not me, who's the center of the universe. Now, now, Seth's line would build cities and they would develop culture and they would develop technology, but their attention ought not be on themselves, but on God, recognizing their need for God in everything and recognizing and thanking him for all that he enables them to accomplish. Cain and his descendants' answer to the curse is to trust and to find hope in themselves, in their own achievement, and to make a name for themselves. But, but Seth's answer is different. Seth's answer is to call upon the name of the Lord. And Christ answered that call. But not how we'd expect. You see, even Jesus, who is worthy of every honor, didn't come to glorify himself. Rather, he came to give himself up. And Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father. And he died. And the Father exalted him. And see, is one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. One of the truly mysterious things of the Christian faith is this. You will be the most peaceful the most satisfied, the most content, the most confident when you aren't the most important person in your world. No amount of money or fame or power 
will satisfy. All those things without God will only will not only fail you, but will set you up for a life of failure and angst. When you try to grasp life for yourself, you squeeze it so tightly that you end up choking out the very life that you desire. And no amount of self-help books are going to help you with that. Jesus knows. Jesus knowing what he would do, he says it like this in Luke chapter 9. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Try to save your life in your own ways and you'll lose it. Lose your life for Christ and he'll save it. We have people, oftentimes Christians, oftentimes people in the church pouring through self-help books, but you ask them how often they're reading their Bible and it's not often. And I wonder if it's because we really want to be able to save ourselves. We really want to be able to help ourselves. And the Bible says, you can't, but Jesus can. And we say, oh, but I, but I really want to save myself. I really want to be the one that does it. And Jesus is saying, no, lose your life for me. And I will save it. could gain everything you dream of in this world, the job, the relationships, the house, the retirement, the toys, the experiences, whatever. Yet if you have not Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing. In church, it's incredibly easy, even after receiving grace by faith, even when we have Christ to slide back into a mindset of independent self-confidence, it's so easy to say to ourselves, sure, I trust Christ for my salvation, but I just need to trust myself with these things in my life. Like, sure, I I trust Jesus for my eternity, but right now, today, I've really got to trust myself. So I want to give you really quickly here sort of an application. I want to give you from this passage three lies that independent self-confidence tells us. Three lies that when you start hearing these lies in your head, when you start hearing these lies coming out of your mouth or something like them, that, you, that should throw up a yellow flag and you should pause and you should self-examine and you should look into your heart and weed these lies out. Lie number one, I can protect myself. I can protect myself or, or some kind of human ingenuity can guarantee me security and safety just as Cain did when he built his own city. And this has been particularly relevant in 2020, has it not? And there's some wisdom here. We can't do nothing. We 
shouldn't do nothing. When I go hiking, uh, I don't say, well, I don't need a map. The Holy Spirit will lead me where I should go. And the Holy Spirit's going, I gave you a map for a reason. You should probably use it. I don't say, well, I don't need to take any food. The Lord will give me my daily bread while I'm out here in the wilderness. God's thinking, I gave you your daily bread. You left it at your house. You were supposed to pack it. At the same time, we recognize that no matter what we do, God's word in Job 14.5 holds true. It says his, his days... Our days are, are determined. The number of his months is with you. And you, God that is, have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Do you know your days are determined? God's determined it. He knows what it is. And it doesn't change. And there's nothing you can do to add a day or to take a day away. A mask won't save your life in the end. A vote won't secure your rights in the end. Avoiding a relationship or a situation won't keep you from emotional hurt. If you're not willing to give up your safety when it comes to obedience to Christ, why do you assume his giving up his own life will save you? Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. So lie number one, I can protect myself. Lie number two, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. Though God said one wife for life is good, Lamech said, if one is good, then two must be better, Right? I hold to the saying, more isn't better, better is better. That's what I think. I have to believe that most people would grant that there have been times when they've been wrong about what is best for them. I think we all could probably think of a time where we thought, no, this is what's best for me, and then later on we realized, eh, I was wrong, that actually wasn't what's best. For me, And yet, I consistently hear people put forward this lie that goes something like, it's inherently unloving to tell someone that what they want or what they think is best for them isn't actually good or isn't actually best for them. That that is un inherently unloving or unkind. And friends, sometimes the most loving thing you can do when you see someone who's about to do something stupid is to tell them, I love you, that's stupid. Don't do that. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful. We can't even trust our own heart. What the heart wants, friends, the mind will justify. Grasp that for a second. What the heart wants... What your heart wants, whether it's good or bad, your mind will figure out a way to justify it. 
Your mind will figure out a way to say, oh, it's okay, it's fine, uh, I can do this, it's, it's not that big of a deal, it's not as bad as them. But there's one who does rightly understand and knows our hearts perfectly because he created him, them. And Hebrews 4.12 says that his word is living and active and that it can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And are we calling on the name of the Lord? And are we looking into his word and allowing it to discern the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts? Are we saying, no, I know what's best for me, even though the Bible tells me something different? Last lie. I need to look out for number one. I need to look out for number one. Lamech's 70 times seven vengeance is a complete disregard for justice. He's been hurt Sure. But his response is, I'm going to destroy anyone who gets in my way. The lie is that no one's going to look out for you but you. So if you can get away with it, then get whatever version of justice you want. Philippians 2 says this, it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this in mind among, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. First Peter 3.14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear, nor be troubled. And again in First Peter chapter 4.19, it says this, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It doesn't say, hey, if someone hurts you, if they cause you suffering, then you are justified in causing suffering back. It says, trust God and do good anyways. Christianity says that you're not number one, God is number one. And you aren't to look out for yourselves, rather you're to look to him. And there's no guarantee that life will go the way you want. In fact, if anything, the promise is that it won't. Christians are told to expect hardship and suffering and difficulty. But God guarantees that those who love and look to him, for them, nothing will happen that won't be used for his good purpose. And that in the end, every wrong, he will judge perfectly. But I think it's difficult when you're in one of those moments, when you're in one of those moments when you feel hurt and insulted, when you feel like no one cares and no one is considering you, when you feel like you've been taken for granted, when you are overcome with worry and anxiety and insecurity about the future, it's difficult when you feel like you should have been enough for something, but you have to face the reality that you just aren't enough for it. When you fall short and you fail and you just want someone to say it's okay, you're okay. When you feel like you've let down your friends and your family and your church. It's difficult in those moments 
to not begin to look inward and rather to look upward instead and to remember it's not about you. And this year, maybe more than ever, has been that for me. You see, even in doing spiritual things and church things, unfortunately, you can begin doing it with an inward focus. Looking to yourself and relying on yourself and justifying yourself when it doesn't go how you want. And there have been moments and days and maybe the better part of months where as Whereas your pastor, I've tried to depend on myself. Where when difficulty and obstacles and failures have come, I've been more focused on myself than I have been on God. And in being more focused on myself than on God, I've been more focused on myself than on you at times. What I realize as I reflect on the year and as I prepared this sermon, what I realize is if in the difficult moments, if I'm filled with self-doubt because I'm focused on myself rather than depending on God, then, then when things are going well, I'm probably depending on myself as well there too. It's probably about me too much. You see, one feels better, but both are equally sinful. And so, friends, I thank God for difficult moments and for hard years like this one. Because if it wasn't for difficult moments and if it wasn't for hard years, then it wouldn't be revealed just how much independent self-confidence has become a part of my heart and life. If it wasn't for difficult moments and for hard years, it wouldn't force us to learn how to call again upon the name of the Lord, the only name that saves. And friends, here's the mystery. Dependent God-centeredness doesn't actually take away life from us. It gives us life. I appreciate what John Piper has been saying for years. He says this, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. The more... We stop paying attention to ourselves and worrying about what we get and our success or our this or our that. And are people paying attention to me enough? Are people doing right by me? Are people giving me what I should get? The more that we focus on God, the more satisfied we are in him no matter what our situation is the more we give God the credit that is due him, the more peace and contentment and satisfaction we get in this life, regardless of our circumstances. 
And the more we find peace and satisfaction and contentment in him, the more God gets the credit that's due him anyways, because it's not about you. And so we come together every week to recenter ourselves on that reality, on the reality that it's about God and on the reality that it's about his gospel and his good news. And each week we have this physical reminder that we do to show us, to remind us just how dependent we are on him to remember the sacrifice that he made that made that possible on the cross. And so I want to read, I want to read that full passage from Philippians 2. And I guess what I'd ask you to do is, is as I read this, maybe concentrate on the words of scripture. If you need to close your eyes, that's fine, but concentrate on these words and reflect on them as we prepare to take communion. So if there is any, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord God, thank you for <sighs> thank you. I thank you that it's not about me. Because man, if it was about me, this would this <laughs> what a train wreck it would be. what a train wreck I would be. And I thank you that even though it really, actually, truly was about you, you still emptied yourself in love, died for your people, that we might be adopted as your children. Lord, I thank you that you did not stay in the grave, but that 
you rose again and the Father has exalted you. And so we have hope that even in the hardest moments in our life, that if we would turn to you and call upon your name, that God, you resurrect even the most difficult situation. And so I pray that we, as a church and as individuals, that we would depend on you, that we would make you the center of our lives and that we would remove ourselves from that position because we don't belong there. Thank you. I pray all this in your name. Amen.